0: Jim Rickard, and just kind of not to refute anything, but to also, he gave us great practical points. But on the flip side, I want to just speak to your hearts, not to give you formulas. And that's what we've been focusing on in the Gospel Center stewardship class and various areas of stewardship God gives us. But I want to just kind of pull at your heart, to speak to your heart as well as my heart and all of you, that, that we live not by, by formula as Christians. But we live by the grace of God and what He has done on the cross for us. So that's the main focal point of today. So just to give you uh, a point, when I talk about money, materialism, worldliness, covetousness, uh, greed, it's all the same thing today. So I may mean, word use. I don't want to be redundant. So, but basically, I'm talking about the same thing. Okay. You know, Sharon Begley. I don't know if any of you know Sharon Begley. Um, she's a very interesting writer. She writes for various things. She writes for Newsweek, and she wrote a piece on why money doesn't buy happiness. Number one, probably because it's not for sale, right? Happiness is not for sale. And she did a research, or her team did a research, and this is one of the statements she writes in the conclusion. Since World War II, the gross domestic product per capita has tripled in the United States. But people's sense of well-being, as measured by surveys asking some variations of overall, how satisfied are you? He's, and actually, that meter didn't move at all. Now, it's tripled. So your standard of living has pretty much tripled since World War II, Americans. But your happiness so hasn't increased at all. So how does, so you're basically, if you think about it from our personal circumstances, if your income, you go work tomorrow, okay, and God blesses you, and your boss comes, and brother or sister, I'm going to triple your wages. Okay, triple your wages. For basically, that this uh, conclusion is that momentarily you'll be happy, maybe 15 minutes, 15 hours, 15 days, but over a period of time, it won't make us happy at all. But we think we would all be happy tomorrow if our boss came to us and said, "I'll triple your salary." But that's the basic conclusion. Paul Ormerod and Hel- Helen Johns also noted in their book happiness, economics, and public policy. A trend in average self-reported happiness correlates to almost nothing. That was their conclusion. Right? This They said, we all know already that hateful, lonely billionaires are unlikely to be very happy. happy. We all know that a poor family full of love and sense of purpose can be happy indeed. So we all know that gobs of cash are neither necessary nor sufficient, for happiness. You now, Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert says Americans who earn five million dollars per year are not any happier than those who earn less than hundred thousand okay. dollars. Now, these are studies done, surveys done um, uh, with people, Americans. Greg Easterbrook wrote on his in his article, "The Progress Paradox: How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse." It says the incredible rise in living standards for the majority of Americans and made them more affluent and happier and more comfortable, more free, and more sovereign over their stuff that has not made them any happier. One journalist also wrote, consumerism is triumphant winner of the ideological war of the 20th century. Consumerism, beating out all religion You know, again, money doesn't buy happiness because possessions doesn't buy happiness. Your stuff, stuff we have, doesn't buy happiness. But how much time do we really spend pursuing these things that ultimately will not possess an eternity? This is why the gospel is so precious. Right? Because it's absolutely free. You know, early church father Tertullian said, can a bad man be poor if he is free from want? If he does not covet the belongings of others if he is rich with the possessions of God. Rather, he is poor who possesses much but craves more. And one commentator also wrote, two dominant characteristics of, of this world are pride, born of man's failure to accept the creaturely estate and his dependence upon the Creator, and covetousness, which causes him to desire and possess all that is attractive to his physical senses. You know, we may differ on type of edu- education, where to go to school, what to study, or to study at all, or sizes of our homes, or what cars to buy, what kind of clothes to wear. We handle materialism, worldliness, and living in this world all differently as individuals. And there's no right exact formula. But there is one thing that we should keep in mind that I think is demanded of Christians, is that that we must not lose our distinctiveness as Christians in this world, living in this world. If we lose this clarity as we walk upon this path of life, in this earth, even in this earth, We lose this clarity. Living in this fallen world, we lose our saltiness. So how we live, it's up to the individual decision. I can't tell you what to buy, what kind of houses to live in, what kind of cars to drive. But one thing that's demanded from us, from God, is that we are to be distinct. Men and women who are set apart to do his will. You know, worldliness and materialism has done to Christians is that we are, I think we would all admit, we're, worldliness is the fastest way for us, materialism is the fastest way for us to lo- lose that distinction. Right? I don't worry about Christians at Cornerstone doing drugs, right? Meth. Right? I don't worry about that. I don't worry too much about you guys going and gambling your life savings away. There are other things. But I worry about including myself and all of you sitting in this room of materialism. John Stott said, we must neither conform to the world or be contaminated by it. Worldliness is a mother of materialism and covetousness and greed, which is sin, Ian Murray wrote, worldliness as a departure from God, and his man centered way of things he adopts the idols and wars with God. Remember, every idol we hold on to wars with God. Every materialistic thing we hold on to, including security, even good things as 401ks and IRAs, they war with God. And this is why, you know. Last week Mr. Rickard came and taught us great information, great practical points we could apply to our lives. Right? From a godly, wise older man who has his what it seems like a, his finances down in and out. You know, I thought I knew things, he knows things that's way beyond the details what I ever know. He probably has forgotten more things than I ever know. Right? It's great things that we could apply, practical things. And so I'm not refuting anything uh, Mr. Rickard has taught, but I, I want to pull at your heart to focus on the gospel perspective, right? Because after all, we have all that we have learned about the gospel in the past year plus. Because at the end of the day, what we do and what we don't do doesn't matter, right? Because if we focus on just the, what to do's and not do. do's, what we learned last weekend, it's like it's easier for us to go back to the legalistic way. So if we do these things, and if we don't do these things, we're righteous. We please the Lord. But our hearts, two people could do the same thing and seem righteous because they're completely motivated by two different things. And you and I can't tell externally Internally, that's why God looks at the heart. Right? I talked to my son so I could share this. This is to sort of kind of put this into perspective. When Derek was young, when he was playing literally, Nolan stopped kicking off his season. Yesterday it was rained out. so um, He couldn't play. He was bummed. Derek was a kind of as a baseball player where I had to make him play. Right? He played because I made him play, basically. I was his coach. I drove him. And I, but no, Derek, I found out later, I saw football but He has passion to play football. He's squatting now, 300 pounds, almost as much as me now. And he's becoming, a, he's a nose guard, and he has his passion to play football. It's a different passion. Nolan, when he plays baseball, the ne- day of the games on Saturday mornings, I come downstairs, when I wake up, come downstairs, he has his uniform on. <laughs> right? Everything, like, crisp. Right? <laughs> to his undershirt, everything, he's ready to go. He's ready. He just can't wait to play. Right? He loves practice. He just loves everything about playing baseball. Now, two guys are playing baseball. On the field, if you're a spectator watching the kid, there are two kids playing baseball. But one kid is playing because his dad's probably making him play. One kid just loves to play. Right? Two different motivations. So we do all these things. Invest, pay off our debts, whatnot, To do those things, maybe to take our fear away, Maybe to be, feel a little bit more secure by what we do with money. Or the other side, just trusting the Lord and just being faithful. So whatever happens to our investment, the things that are, are out of control, we trust the Lord. At the end of the day, that we won't have a dime more to our name, a penny more to our name than what God intended, intends for us. We won't live on this earth one breath more than what God has intended for us. Right? Trusting the Lord and living that way. We may do the same thing. We may make the same investments. However, what pleases the Lord? Warren right. Luther said this of conversion. This is the point where Luther was a monk already for years. Okay. He was a monk before he was a Christian. And he writes this. Though I lived as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner before God, that an extreme disturbance of conscience I did not love, and indeed, I secretly hated the righteous God who would punish sinners. But when I meditated upon Paul's word day and night, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that I came to the understanding that in the gospel, righteousness is a gift from God received by faith. And that is it written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. At that moment, I finally thought I was born again. See, he lived as a monk. He taught the scriptures. And until you understood the righteousness of God through faith, the gospel hit his heart. Now he became a different person. He taught the same Bible, but his perspective of the Bible has now changed because there was a change in heart. Right? The question is, is this our actions that we're doing? Was it the outworking of the Holy Spirit, working in you, done by God's power? That we could do all these things to make ourselves financially secure, trusting in ourselves, trusting in our wisdom, but we're relying on our legalism. And James and I were talking this week. It's a little bit like going back to Egypt. We're more comfortable there. We're comfortable when we are in control we're less comfortable when God is in control. Because legalism, because I see a sense, you take these kind of teachings on, anything that we're we're taught, we take these things on, and what legalism does leads to anxiety if you're not doing well financially. If you're doing well, then it can lead to pride as well. Those all are man-made things. But we, regardless of our circumstances, trusting the Lord, being faithful as we can, being good stewards as managers, knowing that, remember, we're renters on, we're all renters on this earth. We don't own anything. Remember, renter principle. We rent everything we have, including our families. Right? We rent everything we have our wife, our husbands, our children. Our clothes, everything we have, we're renters, right? It's the only thing we fear. We fear the Lord, and we trust the Lord, rather than practical formulas. Because the most important thing is not external transformation. God looks at the internal transformation. You know, money does reveal much about the heart, Luke 12:34 says, Jesus says, "Where your treasure is, your heart will be also." And the condition of man has different effects on people. Just going quickly, you know, Matthew 26, when the woman um, in Bethany, woman came up to the Lord, came up to Jesus, and brought her, her alabaster jar. There's different reactions to money and faith and grace. And she pours it. This is partly her heirloom, everything that she owns. And this is our entire savings, your 401k, what you have on your equity in your home, what you have in your savings account is basically all in her alabaster jar. And she comes to Jesus and pours it on him. Right? And the Pharisees condemn and cutting the. Sh- you remember the passage right after that? You know who was there watching this? Is Judas. Here's a reaction. What does he do? He sees this. He gets angry. And he walks out and sells out our Lord for a few pieces of silver. Money does funny things to people when they observe things in, in, in light of grace. right? Here's a woman who's pouring everything. This is the reaction from the gospel. She pours out everything she has. It doesn't matter. And here he is. He gets angry. The Pharisees are angry and he sells Jesus out. Money does funny things. Money blinds and tim killer says next passage Luke 12 says to be on guard. All right. It says to be on guard because materialism and money is one of those things. It says, be on guard, watch watch out for covetousness or greed. Okay? Because money is one of those things that, that we're blind to. And the reason why our Lord says, watch out. We're all blinded by money and our hearts. We can't trust our hearts to materialism. Right? right? And Keller says this, and I say this too. There's and James, you would agree with me, Dan, you've been in ministry for many years, right? People have come to us about sexual sins, all kinds of sins, right? All kinds of sins they have committed. People come and confess. They need counseling. No one, in the years of Tim Keller's ministry and our few years of ministry, no one says, Bob, I'm suffering from greed or materialism. Why? Because we're all blind to it. No one thinks we're materialistic. Right? No one thinks we're materialistic. All my years, no one has said, I'm suffering from greed. brother. Pray for me. Why? reason is not because no one's suffering from it. It is because we don't see it. It's an interesting dynamic and in current socio-economic climate as it's been gone on this trajectory after the turn of the century is even in this church, there are people, probably, the income bracket of social classes now who mingle together is broad, right? There are people who are income brackets who are maybe five, six, seven times, or even ten times higher than here. And in here, we can't tell. We socialize among each other. We go to each other's homes. So what happens is there's always someone who has more than you. A billionaire sees someone who ten, has ten billion. A millionaire sees who has a billion dollars. Those who make $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 sees those who make it $150,000, $200,000 in this church. And you see that. We go to their homes. What happens at that point? We compare. We never compare ourselves with those who are in the lower income bracket. In our hearts, we covet what we see in one another because the social economic classes have become bunched together. Therefore, it's a proliferation of materialism in our hearts. Unintentional, yet It flourishes in our hearts. This is why Jesus says, watch out. Because nobody feels like they're materialistic. And we covet what we see. One commentator wrote, sex has slain thousands, but materialism has slain 10,000s. You know, this materialism affects all of us. We take this text seriously. In our hearts, we can't trust ourselves, Jeremiah seventeen nine, because we're blind to it. Because human hearts justify our desires. We trust in the counterfeit God of money. And covetousness is an equal opportunity to sin. It affects every income bracket. doesn't matter how much how much we have and how much we don't have. All right. You know, they say 15% of the Americans make over, earn over $100,000 per year, household income. And two-thirds of the people who make over $100,000 per year say they can't afford everything they need. All right. They can't afford everything they need. Why? Because... We're in America. We compare ourselves to what we have, what everybody else has in this country. We compare ourselves to the rest of the world. We're living in the rest of the world context. One percent, probably, in top one of, percent of the world in Orange County, as far as income and standard living is concerned. Now, we compare ourselves, those of us in Orange County, we compare ourselves to each other. There are people in all kinds of income brackets. But if you take somebody from... Some poor parts of the world, what would they say? They would laugh. Right? The things that we struggle with. If Christ said this about blindness and toward covetousness 2,000 years ago, how much is that rampant today? You, know, you, you all heard the illustration, I don't know how many of you have shared this before, of John Wesley's illustration, his control over spending. And this goes into practical points what Mr. Rickard taught last week great 18th century evangelist who lived on 30 pounds a year. Well, actually 28 pounds. So in the first, when he earned 30 pounds, he gave two pounds to the poor. Right? The following year, he earned 32 pounds. So he gave four pounds to the poor. Then a the few years after that, he earned 90 pounds. Then what did he do? He gave away 62 pounds to the poor. And at the height of his career, he earned 1,400 pounds right? 1,400 pounds, a, he gave over 1,300 pounds to the poor. And he lived like this. The English tax commissioner audited him, and he came out clean, because that's what he did. It didn't make sense to people, but that's how he lived. His living standards never changed according to income. So I'll just throw this out there. Again, I don't, don't want to give you formulas. But maybe the way we gauge ourselves is not how much we make or how much we spend. Gauge ourselves, how much is our spending following against John Wesley's rule of, is your standard of living increasing just because our income is increasing? If maybe, if it's staying the same course, perhaps. There's that covetousness, greed going on our hearts. It goes in on all our hearts. That's the danger. How else we know that we are falling into danger is that we worry about it, Luke 12, 22. We worry about it. We're anxious over it. Okay? Greed is not just having things or covetousness and not wanting things. It's thinking about it and worrying about it. First Peter 5 says, cast all your cares upon him. You know, We have worries regarding security, and I'll talk about that a little bit later but a prideful person worries. I love what John Piper said, is that anxieties are meant to be casted. Right? Any anxieties we have. and second maybe thing that we have, that, that we, have, we are suffering from materialism, is security. That money and possessions bring security to our hearts. Because we want to control our lives, we're controlling to be safe, so our family would be safe. The intentions are good. But the amount of money we have not only provides security, it makes us feel valuable. Right? makes us feel valuable. I've driven nice cars. And I, I ask myself, why do I want to drive a nice car? Right? What do I So I asked a friend who is very successful. I said, why do you drive a nice car? He says, it makes me feel like I'm successful. And I feel the same way. I'm telling the world and telling myself I'm successful. I feel better about myself. You know, Chris Everett, those of you who remember Chris Everett from the 70s and early 80s, Chris Everett said that when she won, it made her feel beautiful, made her feel prettier. Now, what does winning tennis matches got to do with feeling beautiful? Right? There are things of this life, whether it's success or money or possessions, it does something to our hearts, just like Judas. Maybe evil things, just funny things, different things, that it points to our hearts, and there's a depth of our hearts, things come out through money and possessions. So even savings, security, can be a sickness that we suffer from. That's part of all being materialism. So let's go to um, 2 Corinthians eight. I've taught on this before, but after just learning the gospel, I have a whole different bent toward this passage about the Macedonian Christians. Second Corinthians eight, one through nine. It says now, brethren, we wish to make you known, make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great Ordeal of affliction and the abundance of joy, and their deep poverty overflowed in wealth with, of their liberality. For I testify that according to the ability, I testified that to, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging with us with much urging and favor of participation. Now, I just jump down to the uh, verse nine it says, "For you have known the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet." For your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And then one of the striking characteristics of early Christians in Macedonia is that they liquidated assets to give to others, and they were in deep poverty. Right? These are churches in Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica, northern part of the Roman province. You know, in The letter to Thessalonians and Philippians, Paul doesn't write anything about the rich or possessions because there aren't anyone. There's no reason for that. That's wasting his time to stress. They're poor people, right? They're impoverished congregational people. You know, most of Roman Empire, we see the grand Roman Empire. You know, we watch movies like Gladiator and The Rich and they're sitting around eating grapes and that's kind of taking it easy, Right? But most of the Roman Empire was very poor, particularly in Macedonia. It's because they were crippled economically. They were overtaxed, first of all. They went through major civil wars. Okay? So what happens is where wars happen, they're just devastated. And all the resources are drawn out of that region, and Rome used it for their own conquering um, uh, endeavors. But what Paul says here is that these people understood the grace of God. Out of understanding the gospel, they gave and considered it a privilege to give. And they begged to give. They implored Paul so they would give. Now how does people come with that? So I've taught on 2 Corinthians several times at this church. So you, forget, you think about that. What has happened here? Well, three things I think happened. I want to go through real quickly with you guys, is that, first, gospel reveals our true wealth. Verse 1 says, Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the church of Macedonia. And verse 9 says, For, the, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich as well. So when we learn the gospel, giving, sacrificial giving has no bounds. They are able to give beyond their ability and consider a privilege. So the gospel allows us to understand the true grace of God. And giving is a response to grace. It's not response to our income. Right? It's not response to income. God blesses you, therefore you give. No. If God takes away, we give if you understand, if you understand grace. And the motivation is the same thing. is the grace in Christ. It's clearly out of the gratitude of what Christ has done. God can't, I was telling my son this, this Friday, we're sharing the gospel to one another, and he said, God can't love us and give us more than what God has given us already. Whatever else is, like, not even gravy or charity on top. God has given us everything. Therefore, there's no more God is going to give you love us anymore. So any giving we do is not a reflection of how much we learn earn. It's it's been done already. If you meditate upon the gospel. The Macedonians understood that. Understood that. Before when I taught this, I couldn't quite understand that. I taught it, but I didn't get it. Secondly, gospel reveals our unbelief. Unbelief in what? In what we keep. When we seek security when we give, when we seek security, we think about what we need. The formula is backwards, right? Again, God has already done. John Piper said, giving, true giving, is not about what you give, but is more about what you keep. The question is not how much should I give, but rather how much there do I keep? It's not how much what percentage I must give, it's how much I dare to spend on myself. They were able to see beyond their circumstances. Gospel reveals our unbelief or belief or faith, which transcends our difficulty or the circumstances we're in. We are rich. Through his poverty, we are rich. We are not going to get any richer. Right? We're not going to get any richer. We are rich now and forevermore. Right? Richness is in our hearts. When we could dwell on the gospel, knowing that God forgave us of all our sins, every sin that we could possibly muster up, and Christ went to the cross and died for all our sins, and we'll be glorified one day. We become co-heirs with him. Like, that's done. Signed, sealed, and game over. You know? You know, they say I read the article. It was a glorious week for those of us with Korean heritage, right? I read Bill Plashka's article right at the morning after I was reading you know, everything. It says, as soon as Kim Yuna went skating, the rest of the people who were trying to contend, says, the game was over. It was, if it was a football game, it was five touchdowns they couldn't make up. Right, It was a baseball game. It would have been called in fifth inning. Right, Game was over. Our grace, game is over. Our possession and our position in Christ is over. How much we really have and we don't have, it really doesn't matter. Right? It really doesn't matter. We should be the happiest people regardless how much God gives us on this earth. And that's what we see in Macedonians. When we cling on to what we have, it shows a degree of our unbelief. And to Macedonians, it shows the level of the faith and the grace of God. And lastly, gospel gives us, reveals to us that Christ is better than possessions. Dealing with idol possessions. grace allowed these macedonians to deal with idols cuz any time you deal with possessions or lack of possessions or abundance of possessions you have to deal with idols what we want and paul says greed is a form of idolatry colossians 3:5 put to death therefore the earthly what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passions of evil desires and covetousness and greed which is idolatry Ephesians 5.5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You know, idolatry of things, money makes us servants to them. You know, danger for Christians, for me and you, is that um, idols become rights to us given to us becomes must-haves for us. Right? And Jim Rickard says, what's wrong with renting? It's like in Orange County. I don't know if you struggle this with the heart. And I fear for younger people in, in Cornerstone and younger Christians in Orange County is that it's a rite of passage for, you, for us to be married, have children, and own a home within a reasonable time. Otherwise, Maybe this is true, maybe this is not. I'll just throw this out there. Is that if you don't, we become less of a person. We become looked down upon. We have fear of people, fear of man that way. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not right of passage for a person, a Christian, to go through those passages. It's not in the Bible. It has nothing to do with our righteousness. Calvin's John Calvin said, "God, Jesus consecrated poverty in his own person that believers may no longer regard it with fear. We shall not have any fear over our finances. God has given us the ultimate treasure and wealth. Christ, who gave up everything. He liquidated everything of himself. He emptied himself, right? That's liquidating everything so that we would have all his righteousness. He liquidated everything. So that we may have of knowing that we have the treasure by, from Christ. He was willing to give up everything, his riches, his treasures, so that we would have inner wealth, inner richness, and that's how we know we are rich. I have holy. We should have holy jealousy. I have holy jealousy. Those who live praising God regardless of their circumstance. I'm jealous of them. We should be jealous of these people, a holy jealousy. But what people have, homes they have, shall we not? We're just as rich as anybody. That's what we should meditate upon. That's our security. To that degree we understand that grace, money shall never have dominion over us. So just in conclusion, I want to just end to, with this, is that concerning our true riches, trusting in Christ, not our possessions. You know, I said before, you know, antidote for materialism is giving. Maybe Giving is a reaction, outworking of understanding the gospel. True antidote for worldliness, materialism, covetousness, or greed is the cross of Christ. What was done there, what was given to us there, he gave us the entire bounty there, everything that we could own, the most precious thing, right it's like going to prices right when I was young, I used to watch prices, right? What do you choose? Do you watch choose these little gifts? You go for the big whammy, right? That was given to us. John Owen wrote. When someone sets his affection upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as dead and undesirable thing. The bait of sin loses their attraction and disappears. And fill your affections with the cross of Christ that you may find no room for sin. Amen. Right? Amen. When we focus upon the cross, what Christ has done, what's been given to us, the richness there, our affection for the world and things of this world will diminish, will go away. There will be no room ultimately there. But we know that everything has been given to us. You remember in Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, when he heard the gospel, when he heard Christ, he said, I'll give half of it away. Everything that I've taken from other people um wrongly, I'll give him fourfolds. What did Jesus tell him? Come down from that tree. Come down there from the tree. But in essence, it's not in the scriptures, but I'll add libid here for the glory of Christ is that He's telling us, Eugene, Donna, come down from that tree, because I will ultimately go up on that tree. I've gone to the tree for you. Right? We cut we came down so that we would have freedom, that we are no longer bound by the things of this world, the chains of idols that stricken our hearts, so that our Lord would go up on the tree. The tree is life to us, Keller said. He said tree is life to us, but it was death to Christ. But it was the ultimate gift, that death means everything to us. What did Job say in Job chapter 1? It says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's Job who said these words, but there's only one true Job. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel tells us that Jesus became naked so that we won't be naked anymore. That he clothed us with his grace and no longer are we vulnerable to sin. We have, he has overcome sin. Therefore, we have overcome sin. So when we give, when we tithe, remember, Jesus did not tithe his life. He gave 100%. God gave his most precious 100%. He didn't give us 10%. So percentage, it doesn't matter. God wants our hearts. We, he wants us to be passionate, whatever we do. Right? We play this life to the glory of our Lord, and we give everything, everything that we could give. I love this, what Jonathan Edwards wrote. He says, there are three things that we should know as Christians, to all Christians, is that bad things in this life, bad circumstances, bad situation, will ultimately turn for the good, Romans 8.28. And the good things of this life, everything good that's in this life, on this earth, will be lost. And we, but we won't lose our salvation. But lastly, the best is yet to come in eternity, not in this life. Right? Christ died so that the, we could have that best in eternity. If we don't live for this earth, we live for eternity. Remember our true state, brothers and sisters, as a son of man has come and brought us riches and an inheritance to God through faith who, when we understand the grace of God. That should be our motivation to serve him, not bound by our money and possessions. Remember the gospel that saved us. Through faith we have riches and we are rich in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you just with gratefulness in our hearts. We are grateful for the Gospel. We're grateful for our Lord and the cross of Christ that saved us, that caused the change, the the work of regeneration that you have done in our hearts so that we might be rich. And in light of that, that we may live on this earth, not holding on to possessions, but ultimately just holding on to what you have given us. We give you praise for what you have done in our lives. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name.